0: This is
1: Candleland Media. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Folk Horror Podcast. I'm your host, Neil, and I am so excited to have Mike in the studio here with us. to be here. The studio being Neil's basement. Hi, everybody. Now, this is going to seem as a weird time lapse because we're actually recording our discussion about Redshift right now. Yeah, which is
0: all about time lapses.
1: And probably Mike won't be here in the studio next week when I announce. My voice will. But then he'll come back... No, because next week will probably be the second thing about Robin Redbreast. Oh, that's right. I and then you'll here. come back.
0: I wish I could be here. To actually be there live right. for the
1: Redshift. So there's, this is already a big time weird thing going on here. But you all don't know or don't care about any of
0: that. We just are here to be in person to introduce this great uh, film and um, our episode about it, Robin Redbreast.
1: Yeah, 1970, play for today, Robin Redbreast. Um, The first thing I should do is I have this feedback from Carl and John about The Wicker Man. So I do want to mention that here. Would that be okay if I read some of it and then you could actually respond? Absolutely. Angrily? Wrong, (laughs) all of it. No, we love comments. Please leave comments and Uh, also tell us when we're wrong. So unfortunately, due to time restraints, Mike was not able to sit here uh, while I went through the feedback, which we do have a lot of. So I'm going to give you the feedback from John here and from Carl. And then Mike is going to pretend that he heard the feedback. If you're kind of done with the worker Man, I understand. You can probably fast forward maybe five, ten minutes, you know, if if you don't want to hear any more worker Man talk. But for me, to, in order to be thorough, we got to get all through all this good stuff because this is really helpful stuff. So to start with, John mentions that he's heard it described that the slowdown part of uh when all the people were making love outside was done to create a dream effect. Uh, he also th- liked the, uh, the catch by Mike that it was the woman on top in the, when the dolls were set up on the bed. And he mentions that the man on the bottom is wearing a, what looks like a sailor's cap, but also a blue uniform, perhaps a reference to Howie's police uniform. Uh, he mentions a site called the Various Versions of the Wicker Man to figure out what scenes were moved around for each version. Uh, the director's cut is missing a few shots found only in the other versions, so no version is complete. He mentions that Ash, who is the teen who is offered up to Willow early on in the movie, is seen later in the courtyard scene strutting in with a girl on each arm. He's kind of just in the periphery of the shot, but that's kind of a funny follow-up. I like that. A fun fact from John, the Maypole song recording uses girls, not boys. John says that he he notices that he thinks the maypole scene is very sexual, even going beyond pelvic thrusts. So I guess we now have a debate between Carl, who didn't think it was necessarily sexual, and John, who sees even more than I did in the scene. Uh, she mentions she didn't think that he didn't think that the woman gave the egg to the baby. Uh, instead, she's kind of clutching the baby closer because Howie's going nuts, brushing the altar off, and puts the grass on it. He says, no, Howie is not being taken on a tour when he sees the fire dance. That's just on the way to Lord Summer Isle's castle, and you could, that's why he's going that way. It was Miss Rose and Lord Summer Isle singing The Tinker of Rye. Uh, it's not the only original song in the film. It was not written by Anthony Schaefer. Um, he had nothing to do with the songs, but Peter Schaefer did. Uh, he helped out Paul Giovanni. You can check out Gary Carpenter's website to read more about that and, and from the book, etc. Peter also stood in for Howie in one scene as Punch, so it wasn't always Howie in the costume there. None of it was filmed on an island. The aerial shot shows islands, but that's it. You can see the wiki for all the known locations. And the children chanting, we carry death out of the village, are carrying a baby doll, if you look closer. we I think we forgot what what they were doing. The novel was co-written by Hardy and Anthony Schaefer. It was written after the film was shot. John recommends it, as it's full of all kinds of details. And some of them were scripted but never shot, and others were never even scripted. John did want to mention also, Mike and I addressed his inquiry about where we got the info about Hardy walking into a pub and getting inspired to make a movie from that. So Brown's book, which is out of date for many things, says that Tony Schaefer wanted to do something with Christopher Lee and he'd been asked by Peter Snell, of British lion, to do something with David Penner's ritual. And Hardy was only brought in after that. John mentions that the Cinefentis magazine articles were a very important piece in getting The Worker Man in front of fans as a cult film, but that it also was kind of out of date with info that has kind of since been updated. So some of that stuff that's in there might not be the most accurate um, recent telling. But who knows exactly what happened when. And then on part three of our Wicker Man conversation, John has a few corrections or comments. Uh, we mentioned Nawada and we tried to pronounce Evelina, or Evel- Evelino, which we mispronounced it, and I probably still did. Christopher Lee mentions her name during the courtyard meeting, and the two are different gods. Original scripts had him additionally mention Shoni, god of the sea, when he offered the ale to the sea. And in the versions that got released, uh, Christopher Lee says, Oh,
0: god of the sea. I give you this ale as a libation that you may in the years to come bestow on us the rich and diverse fruits of your kingdom.
1: He mentions that the scenes with the baker, butcher, and fishmonger were supposed to be longer with dialogue with all of them, but a lot of it got cut. The corpse in the coffin has been confirmed to be the lady that we saw in the library when Howie was reading about May Day traditions. John says he always thinks it was odd that he was, she was alive and well reading in the library one minute, and eight minutes later, in film time, she's in a box. Uh, much happens in the movie, so it could be possible. It does seem a little odd. The Hand of Glory scene was soon after that. Not immediately, though. They grabbed her hand awfully quickly, which is kind of funny. In the original scripts and the novel, Howie and the Gravekeeper discuss why the Gravekeeper, Old Gardener in those versions, has to bury the bodies deep to keep people from stealing Hands of Glory's room from them, which is a nice little touch. You can see the Whitby Hand of, hand of Glory and Hand of Glories that you can buy. Hopefully i will remember to put these links on our... Poojum pudding blog. But there's no hanging, no backstory about anybody being hung. Uh, or hanged, I should say. The novel mentions it several times, though. Uh, the sword dance isn't right before the Wicker Man. Lots happens in between. And he mentions that he wasn't aware that beat, being beaten by sticks was part of Punch and Judy, but that's literally what Punch does to everybody, is he beats them with a stick. So, And this is, you know, it's unfortunate now, but he beats his wife with a stick. He beats the the crocodile with a stick, he beats I think a police officer with a stick, he beats everybody with a stick. Um, and I don't think they use tongs, I think they just use like a little like a, a little piece of wood. Uh, the sword dance is in the procession, the sword's lock is usually done in a dance, but this time it's done all by itself. And he says that they weren't Morris dancers, they weren't official Morris dancers, they were picked out by Stuart Hopps, the choreographer, from a military barrack in Edinburgh because at least they could keep time. He taught them the processional movements and the lock. Sword dancing is related to Morris dancing, but it's fairly distinct. And by the way, no one dances with real swords. They're too heavy and dangerous. English sword dancing uses wrapper swords or wooden slats. What we see in the movie is just for the movie. The theory of Moors being the genesis for Morris dancing, according to John here, has been discredited. I think Carl's going to talk about that in a minute. Blackface was used to to mask, but it's no longer considered PC and was not traditional before the 1920s or so. And Christopher Lee was dressed as a woman, and that's called the Betty. I guess maybe Mike mentioned that. I don't know. And Not only is Paul Giovanni in one of the shots on the cliff, but Anthony Schaefer is in one too. The associate music director, Gary Carpenter, also dressed up in drag to play the organ in the church scene. And Hardy, I guess, was a minister as a cameo, but it didn't make it into any of the cuts. The band who plays throughout the film are seen on camera during the landlord's daughter, Gently Johnny, and Maypole scenes. Uh, he's not sure how many wicker men were built. I've, I had read three, but um, I'm assuming John knows more about wicker men in general. Um, but yes, there were some tall ones, some medium-short ones that were used for different shots. A spare tall one was driven to the Cannes Film Festival, where Roger Corman saw it, but not the movie, as the studio forbade it, which is really weird. Uh, there's more to that story, apparently. Um, on the a- animal safety, Anth- Anthony Schaefer had to publicly tell everybody that they weren't going to burn any animals. Uh, but he, so he, and he had to write a note to uh, to that effect. And he did. It said, "We are not burning these animals. We are, however, burning pandas, and we're burning rather cuddly little rabbits and a host of other charming domestic animals, as these would be more acceptable sacrifices than goats and sheep, which, on the whole, are not terribly attractive." Yours, Anthony Schaefer. Peter wasn't so. Peter Snell wasn't very pleased with that. That's from uh, Alan Brown's *Inside the Wicker Man*. Summer is a coming in. Is only heard when they set the wicker man on fire, not during the procession scene. And Howie shouts out for Daniel. Uh, That's what Mike heard. I didn't necessarily hear it, or I can't remember if I heard it. um, But that's what Mike heard. And John says if that's true, then then Mike is the first person to discover that. And... He also sends some pictures of a commune that recreated their own wicker man. It wasn't until recently that he found out that uh, that John found out that their man wasn't one of them made for the film. So it must be pretty accurate. I'll send you the link on the Boojum Pudding blog site. So thanks, John. Really useful information. Now let's move on to Carl. So Carl, my brother, says that we were wondering about the goddess of the orchard, which the film calls Evelina, or. Avelino, no, or I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. Carl uh, looked into this and pretty much discovered that the only people who have ever worshipped a goddess with this name are the modern neo-pagans. The word is actually medieval Welsh and means apple trees. It was the name of a poem found in the medieval Welsh manuscript The Black Book of Carmarthen. The poem Eir na, meaning the apple trees, has nothing to do with a goddess but is about the character Wilt, who would eventually evolve into the character of Merlin. My brother's an uh, Arthurian scholar, so I want to pick his brain about all this kind of stuff. Legend says that Wilt went mad at the Battle of Arfderid in 573, and so went to live wild in the Caledonian Forest. The poem, Ear Avalinaw, is about Wilt speaking his prophecies to the apple trees of the Caledonian Forest, and also to his pet pig. I can't figure out why the name of the poem was turned into the name of a goddess. Carl can't. Uh, more about sword dances and Morris dances. Most of the folk dances are performed by amateurs who just have real jobs and then have clubs where they practice things. The dancers in the movie wear kilts. The dance they do what looks more like an English sword dance than a Scottish one. He says that these days the term Morris dancing is often used loosely to refer to all types of English or British folk dancing, but properly it refers, as John mentioned, to a specific type of folk dancing. So a sword dance is not technically a Morris oh, dance. Yes. And there are records of Moorish dancing in England going back as far as the year 1448. Another thing I want to pick Carl's brain about is he knows a lot about mummers' plays. And to me, that all kind of ties in with sort of a folk tradition in England. Uh, at the time, there were large fashion throughout Europe for things Moorish. There was a dance called the Moresca. Uh, I think we mentioned the Moresca, in- involving Moorish clothing, wearing bells on the wrist. Morse dances, or sword dances, as well as other British folk dances and folk plays, often have a number of interesting characters you see in The Worker Man, such as the Fool and the Hobby Horse. A female character played by a man, this is a complex symbol involving what anthropologists like to call liminality. It's pretty cool that he mentions this here, because we're going to talk about liminality more uh, when we get to Redshift. But the word liminal comes from a Latin word for threshold. Something is liminal if it occupies the boundary between two states. Thus, an androgynous being isn't quite a man nor a woman, but in some gray area between. Traditional societies all over uh, consider the liminal to be particularly sacred. Thus, liminal times are sacred, such as dawn or dusk, or the days on which the season change. So, liminal times are often celebrated by ritual that involve liminal beings and liminal symbols. Having said that, Carl says, these traditional British folk costumes are usually performed rather light-heartedly or comically. So the costume worn by Christopher Lee at the end of The Wicker Man looks to Carl, exactly the sort of thing that someone would wear during one of these traditional ceremonies. A couple more notes. He mentioned summer is a coming in. It dates back to the 13th century. I don't know if we mentioned, but we did know that it was um, one of the first uh, earliest recorded songs that exist. Um, No reason to believe it's actually more older than the 13th century or that it's Celtic. Uh, he mentions that the artist who drew the 1676 picture had never seen a wickerman, but he was imagining what a wickerman must have looked like based on the writings um, that the Roman had written about the Celts sacrificing humans at man. Some folks are skeptical uh, because it was the Romans writing about, you know, the, the people they were occupying. But obviously, there's no archaeological evidence of things being burnt. Carl's final thing that he would like to say. Is that the end of the Wicker Man looks like the video to the 1983 Men Without Hats song. That was brilliant. Thanks, John. <laughs> Wait, that was Carl. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, Carl. Thank but you, now man. I'm afraid the Wicker Man is burned down to the ground at least for this year, and we're finally going to move on to other. We things. had to eventually, you know. I mean, it's. I think it's good that we did three episodes on the Wicker Man. Yeah, and actually, that was a good thing since I have you here in front of me. Let. I, it seems like. When we first started this, we weren't necessarily sure, sure exactly what it was going to be like, right. but it's pretty so clear right. to me that we are thoroughly going through yes. every movie piece by piece as Why much not? as possible. That's the way to do it, I think. I, I think it's probably it, it it really works for me because it's it's almost like we only get like we're probably not going to talk about the Worker man again and no. set maybe little bits and pieces It'll here and come there. Back but so it's almost as if we have to, I feel like we want to be thorough about everything.
0: Yeah. And, and I, what I love is that we're going to go into such great detail on these films that when we talk about later films, we're going to call back to certain scenes that we've already discussed. Uh, certainly, you know, King sacrifice comes up again and again in folk horror uh, came up in the two things we've already viewed and talked about uh, Wicker man and Robin Redbreast. And, a little bit even in redshift which is to come a preview for all you listeners in the future in the past Uh, so yeah there's going to be lots of themes of folk horror that come back up and so I think it's great that we go as detailed as we can through these and you know a film like the wicker man you know that is such a rich film with so much myth so much folklore in it that i think you really want to you want to peel back all those layers yeah to the to the at the risk of boring your audience
1: yes that's always it, that's always the risk that that we're overdoing it and the truth is i edit I even edit edit some things out when i'm uh <gasps> when we're oh, recording yes don't. i do i edit all of mike's jokes out that's Everything <laughs> brilliant that i've ever said it's it's, it's really floor. tough like i have to decide it's easier for me because if it's something i said i can say oh i don't think that's necessary but it's right. difficult when mike no. says something i don't want to be like I trust
0: you okay make me sound good
1: i, I think you can even lower my voice a few more octaves. <laughs> and i'm afraid that's all we're gonna hear from mike for now in this introduction as he appears to have melted but it was nice to have him in the studio Fortunately, see, there's a drain in the floor here, so won't really have to even do too much cleanup. But let me do mention, uh, before we get into the conversation, let me mention a couple of folk horror related things. The Folk Horror Revival Group has added to their itinerary for the Witch Cults event on the 14th of July. They will be screening the movie Simon King of the Witches and the Italian print of Witchcraft 1970. And there are talks about witches and witchcraft from Diane Perkis, Darren Charles, Gail Nina Anderson, and Bob Begree, And music from Black Mountain Transmitter, the Heartwood Institute, and Hokano. And really cool Folk Horror Revival Witch Cults t-shirts, which are available from the Folk Horror Revival page. Once again, that's the 14th of July, so try to get your tickets now. And in other big folk horror revival news, look for the two-volume Harvest Hymns book, which is all about folk horror in music. Um features an article about the band Broadcast that I wrote. Um, I'm merely the least of the contributors, however. We got Johnny Trunk in there, Gary Parsons, Sharon Krauss, Jim Moon, Adam Scoville, Andy Pachorik and all the other great uh, folk horror revival guys and ladies. Uh, So many more, and it's in two volumes, and it's all put together by the awesome Jim Peters. Um, I might get a chance to talk to Jim in the future, uh, and maybe talk to Darren Charles about the Witchcraft event, so listen for that. We'll have more information coming soon. I will also mention here that I have uh, added a couple new things to the Folk Horror Store. Would you like an original first edition copy of Ritual by David Pinner? Would you like a copy of The Wicker Man? Would you like the hard-to-find American edition of Children of the Stones? Go to my store, which you can find from the Boojum Pudding site. Or, if you really want to go there directly, you go to squareup.com slash store slash candle media. All one word, no hyphens. So with that, it's on to the discussion. Mike and I discuss 1970s Robin Redbreast. we are going to talk about Robin Redbreast which was broadcast on uh, Dece- in December 1970 on the BBC Play for Today which was a show from the 70s through 1984 and uh it's written by John Griffith Bowen starring Anna Cropper as Nora Palmer not Laura Palmer Nora Palmer uh any more setup you would you want to make
0: well Maybe the background too for you're a you're a fan of of British television and the b b c yeah so um, maybe the setup there we can talk about is just that there was limited channels, obviously right only three channels at the time this was broadcast, yeah, and so there's you know something of appointment television you had to schedule and sit down and watch, and this was very controversial when it first came out and I think we should probably remember how provincial British television was still in the 70s, probably in America, too. But um, particularly with only three channels, there are not a lot of options.
1: Yes, it was. That is. It's a really good point, because you pretty much were like, well, I can watch this. I can watch cricket. I can watch um, some documentary or I can watch this weird play for today on BBC. So.
0: Right. Which which was a popular show and which consisted basically of filmed plays, and many of which were written by pretty well-known authors. I just made a note of some of them. Ian McEwen, John Osborne, Dennis Potter, David Hare, uh, Arthur Hopcraft, Graham Reed, etc. cetera. They, they all wrote for this play for today, which ran from 1970 to 1984 on BBC One, and had some controversy prior to this as well and, and after this play with uh, Dennis Potter's play Brimstone and Treacle and Scum, which is about... Um, young offenders in a British institution for youth and both were transmitted, but both um, uh, basically had to um, pass the center. And I guess that was difficult at the time. And, and there was some controversy about this one too. Apparently this was not originally meant for play for today, uh, but it was supposed to be on one of the suspense shows on the BBC. But the, um, the person who, made that decision, said that it was the interrelation between the the fertility rite and the church festival was too much for the powers that be. And so I think it probably never did get censored. I think they just took it down to play for today because they knew that they were more likely to broadcast it on on that program.
1: We're going to be doing Redshift in a couple weeks or a week or something, and that was also a play for today as well.
0: Oh, ah, okay, yeah, yeah, and Penda's Fenn as well, which we'll probably talk about oh, at some point. Yeah. Oh yeah, which which was actually just a few years after this. Uh, when was Redshift? Like, Penda's Fenn was in seventy four. I
1: can't remember. I don't know. Okay, have to look it up.
0: Yeah, but probably right around the same time. Um, and this was this was definitely I can say after having viewed it that it definitely pushed the boundaries for television at the time, uh, especially yeah. with scenes of uh, implicit violence or, or um, menacing, you know, overtones. And I think for the the censors, it would have been the contraception at the time. It's
1: yeah. And the way, the way she talks with her friends, she's real. it sounds really modern, you know, like they're just kind of teasing yeah. her and she's really frank with them about what she's been doing, you know, and they're just, yeah. A
0: liberated and, woman. She, you know, she has sex for fun, not for procreation. She was in a relationship for eight years and was not married Yeah, she um, and her friends, especially the conversation, their friends was kind of shocking to me. I mean, the way they trade partners. And at one point, you know, they even talk about one of the guys who's married to a woman, both both of whom are friends. He talks about making a pass at her and his wife seems okay with it. So,
1: yeah, it was strange. It was weird. Uh, Also, we should mention that this was in uh, color originally. And it's too bad to me. It's too bad that it's not in color. I really would have liked to see some of the details in color, like the dream sequence, and just I don't know. I just I I have a feeling it would have been I don't know, kind of lurid, like a lot of those '70s television shows come off now. It's just you know, everyone's a little greasy. (laughs) Yeah, well, especially also
0: scenes of nature and trees and foliage and might yeah. have been more vivid. You think about Wicker Man, which we reviewed, and all of the shots of all the foliage, are the color definitely adds to that film. But that was actually my one of my questions for you is, do you like the film in black and white? I, I mean, some people see it as a happy accident. Although, of course, the reason it's in black and white, we should say, is no accident because of the mistreatment of the archive by the BBC, right? Right.
1: Uh, not really. I guess I'd I would definitely like to see how it came out first. I don't really. I'm not like a. I Make guess it
0: lemon yeah. out of, lemonade out of lemons.
1: Yeah, not really. No, I would rather see it in color. So
0: I, I will just say though that some of the images were pretty powerful, looking in black and white, that's the strange yeah. trees, uh, and the cover image of Mister Fisher and with the, the kind of broken glasses is spooky in black and white or monochrome.
1: Yeah, um, that's true. I, I guess it. It makes the film, maybe it's just more that it makes the film seem a little less attractive for people to watch, perhaps, because when you, people see things in black and white, they're not quite as interested in them. So maybe from that point of view, it, it, it might be why it's not quite as well known as some of these other works, is that it seems older, even though it's only, it's 1970, it's not that old, but...
0: That's it, true. It and I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it was also never rebroadcast. It was rebroadcast one time, and that's an interesting story, which can Talk about that. Um, do you know that story about no. the? No. So I I I did um, get the BFI DVD instead of streaming it on YouTube. I oh, went nice. to Scarecrow Video. Yeah, I felt like oh I yeah. Could... Yeah, I know. So this is a plug for Scarecrow Video, amazing video store in Seattle with great British drama section, which you checked out last time you were in town, and they've got they've got a bunch of play for today's and all kinds of British TV including many other shows that John Bowen wrote and the director, James Taggart, that he, that he directed or James McTaggart. So the story goes that the, um, and I heard this on the extras on the DVD, John Bowen himself talked about it, that the first broadcast in 1970, there was a power outage in a good part of London. And it happened right after the scene with the knife where she threatens Rob. And so a bunch of angry viewers wrote into the BBC afterwards because, of, of course, this film is very suspenseful and you want to know what happens next. And so for the, like, the first and I think one of the only times they rebroadcasted it a few weeks later and so that you know people could see the ending, who had missed out on that. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah, it must have been quite intense, uh, uh, you know, kind of sense of frustration that people felt like not knowing how it ended. So that's the first broadcast of it. And, and um, yeah, so the the other uh, thing to talk about maybe is John Bowen and some of his work prior to this or and after this as well. Uh, did you want to talk about it? Or yeah, you want no, me to? Um,
1: I all I wrote was that he wrote sort of a, a sequel, a photograph, which we, yeah, might, we probably should see. But I don't even know if it really is sure. a sequel.
0: Seems like it's more of a kind of kitchen sink drama. And he's written thrillers and he's written other things that we can call folk horror he wrote two of the episodes of the BBC's Ghost Stories for Christmas. Yeah, right. Uh, and the nice connection to this play or, or film is that it, this was broadcast in that same time frame in December, kind of, kind of leading up to Christmas, which was considered a spooky time slot for BBC at the time, which I love. I mean, I, I ha- always had a tradition of watching horror movies at Christmas, just being Jewish and not really caring to get into the festive spirit. What better tradition than to, you know, watch... Slasher movie or something because It just has nothing to do at Christmas And just when I learned that the BBC Actually used to broadcast ghost stories every Christmas I thought wow that's amazing That I would I would have watched those Every year at Christmas and So Robin Redbreast was um, Broadcast at that time frame And John Bowen wrote two of the other Ones two of the other BBC ghost stories The Treasure of Abbott Thomas and The Ice House the former is MR James story which most of Those BBC ghost stories were uh, and the latter is maybe considered one of the weaker entries, but still notable. And he also wrote uh, an episode of The Dead of Night. And that episode does sound folk horror-ish. It's called A Woman Sobbing. It does feature a discontented middle-class wife or woman. In this case, she's a wife. And she's dealing with depression. And she hears keep, every night she hears a woman sobbing. And she's kind of not sure if she's going mad or if her house is haunted. And it has lots of paranoia and... It also is very similar in that description. To me, it reminds me of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, which is a classic of weird fiction. And definitely something I will have to see after after seeing Robin Redbreast and hearing about it. Yeah, and the Dead of Night series looks great in general. There's another episode that stars the same actress, Anna Cropper. It's called The Exorcism, and it also takes place in a country home. And in this case, she's possessed by the spirit of a wronged woman. And then the other thing that John Bowen wrote that I noted down is an episode of Mystery of the Imagination. He adapted a story by Sheridan Le Fanu, who is another weird fiction writer and also an influence on M.R. James called The Flying Dragon. Oh. And, uh, yeah. And so um other than the other thing that you mentioned, that's kind of all I had to note about John Bowen. He did write a photograph, as you noted. And it's actually not I think it's not Nora who reappears in that. It's Miss, it's Mrs. Vigo who who is. Who is in that? Random, now that I think about it.
1: random, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Why don't we? Why don't we get started? And it, actually, this this show starts with a photograph of the cottage.
0: Yes, and the cottage is uh, a cottage that Nora, the main character of this, has just purchased, and it's deserted and it's been refurbished. Well, and, she, hasn't, she part- hasn't
1: purchased it. She basically inherited it from her for from her boyfriend in some way. Like they, oh, they broke up. True. Right. And he was like, I don't want this house. You can have it. It was, but even though they didn't actually, they weren't married, they didn't get divorced. So it wasn't like a legal thing. It was just somehow yeah. he gave it to her or something.
0: Yeah. Maybe he just, um, uh, bestowed it to her, or whatever the legal term is.
1: Yeah. yeah. It
0: sounds. I mean, it sounds like he didn't really want it cause it was run down, It was a, you know, country home, maybe meant for weekends for getaways from the city. Uh, and, yeah, it starts with that image of the house, which we can kind of point out was actually based on the house that John Bowen bought, Bowen bought in the country. He In the interview, he talks about that, how he based it on his own home.
1: And so she's talking about how she's getting it refurbished, but we see it's kind of telling that the first shot is a cottage, is the old cottage, and then she says, but that's before. You know, we Im- immediately get the, like, modernism versus versus the old you know right right away um yeah. and her her friends are pretty hilarious throughout this you know they're kind of her friends but they also kind of she kind of has problems with them you know like but they're all, her only friends for whatever reason
0: well she she doesn't like them she admits yeah, she that at one that, point yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think part of her getting away from that the city is getting away from them and you know I, this this partner that you mentioned peter is his name so she's just experienced a breakup with him after eight years she's inherited from him this cottage she's going there to kind of recover and you know she's very vulnerable in the beginning of this she talks about being pricklish and she's you know her friends are attempting to you know maybe distract her with their witty repartee and you know there's some joking they seem to not be very helpful to her they're not very compassionate to her they're just kind of joking about making making a pass it like he's joking about making a Pass at her, yeah, yeah. He talks, he talks about making a pass at her, and she refers to him as a lecherous owl.
1: And there's a lot of bird imagery in this.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. So I had to note that. And at the at the same time, basically, he admits, or his wife, you know, asks her when he leaves the room if he really did make a pass at her, and apparently he did. So (laughs) you know, they've got this this kind of carefree. Um, swinging lifestyle a bit. Um, these, you know, I, I assume they all work for the BBC or for, you know, in in television, uh, in kind of a more uh, uh, bohemian milieu.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, she says she feels soft and exposed, and they talk about how they talked about like, that she... like a, like an unshelled crab, according to Jake. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which she
0: calls delicious. So there's more of that dialogue. That, <laughs> that like it's sexual talk.
1: Um, and the cottage is—I just looked it up from where they mentioned other cities. It's sort of central West England, near Coventry, Evesham, and Birmingham. So that's yeah. almost uh, almost to Wales, but not quite.
0: Yeah, it's away from it's it's far, far away from London, which is the key piece. Right. And she mentions that the cottage is one mile from the village, and so there's even some isolation there from from the rest of the village. Right. Right. One mile from the road, one mile from the village. So she's. She's definitely isolated and that's what she wants. And her friends are questioning that they can't believe that she would want to go live there. And she repeatedly says, I know what I'm doing at the same time that she's assertive and confident. She's also very vulnerable. You know, she, she cries at one point, she, um you know, has just barely gotten over this breakup or hasn't gotten over it. She's just barely experienced the breakup and processed it. And she talks about the wasted years that, that she spent with Peter and, you know how he was the one who broke up with her, and um yeah, I mean, I also throughout this this play or this film, there's kind of a tug and pull. She's a liberated woman, she is bold, assertive, she's definitely a product of the post you know sixties kind of first wave of feminism, well, I guess we'd call it that in America, but the feminist kind of women's lib movement and and at the same time she's you know she herself feels you know, vulnerable and um, perhaps that she was not treated properly with the relationship or that she wasted those years in the relationship. She, she feels maybe I sensed a little regret that she maybe didn't get married or that they didn't have children together. Not sure how if you pick pick that up. Yeah. But.
1: Yeah. She feels like she's just starting over and she's, I mean, she mentions later she's 35. So she's literally like, yes. wow, what did I do? Eight, eight years are gone and I'm
0: 35. Right. And we can probably say that, you know, even with her, even though this takes place in a fairly liberated time frame, there's still an expectation of women. And at 35, women would still be seen as past their prime. And, you know, it would be difficult for them at that point to start a family is the sense in this. And that'll come up later. I think that really is important to note about her character, that she has some regrets about that. About not having a child, but she also wants to be her own woman and wants to be a feminist and not have to care about those concerns.
1: And then we go, if it's okay to go on, we go straight to the to the cottage and she's where she's installed the waste disposal unit, right? Which I actually right. that actually I think that's kind of like a Chekhov's gun because that kind of comes back into play later in the in the movie. Yes. Um, yes,
0: definitely. And I hate those things too. When she talks about the hands, you know, being careful with your hand. I'm always paranoid when I'm using one of those oh, that my yeah. hands somehow go down the drain. You're
1: just not going to think and you're just going to think, wait, how do I use this? Oh, yeah, I stick one hand in and turn on. You know, like Yeah, something's going <laughs> to short circuit in your brain where you just do it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It'll that sink will be. Be coming back later in another scene, Uh, and here's where we meet Mrs. Vigo. Is that shall we talk about her? Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Vigo. I don't know who played her. I didn't write that down. Uh, It uh, is Frida Bamford. Okay, I've never seen her before. I'm not sure how how much she's been in, but she was very subtle in her role. I thought she's very controlling of of Nora uh, and nosy, and she asks all kinds of inappropriate questions throughout. But she does it in a way that's maternal and very much like just a grumpy housekeeper. Right. Uh, And that's that's what she is. Apparently, you know, she's the woman who's taking care of this cottage and apparently is. I I, I wasn't sure if she was hired by Nora or if she just kind of installs herself as the housekeeper. I I think
1: that's it. She says, I clean here. I think she says, like, this is my place to clean. Like, this is this is what I'm supposed to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so
0: she's got a there's a lot of menace and really unsettling to these characters and she apparently you know at first appears rather normal to us i mean she's doing what a housekeeper would do and um uh, she warns also nora about the mice the field mice that are in the walls that'll play a role later as well
1: uh yeah so uh, so they they hear the hear the mice they notice some droppings um and then it pretty much switches from them talking she meant talks about being a script editor then it switches back to the friend's reading the letter a letter from her, and they're drinking sherry and they're like i wonder if she's it's kind of a funny joke because they're like oh i wonder if she's drinking more and they're literally drinking as as they as they say it right Um, right and
0: also there's a voiceover where we hear her we hear nora nora reading the letter as we see them reacting to it or as it's cut with them reacting to it
1: right right where she's saying no she's not drinking more and she and, she's and drinking less she and, says. Yeah. and it, it actually sort of shows just there how different she is, how she's trying to kind of move away from that lifestyle where they're just you know sipping sipping sherry, and she's like no i'm I'm not drinking more, I'm drinking less actually, um, yeah, and also
0: they say she's bound to not get any company, and she it cuts with her in the letter saying there's plenty of company here, yeah. and they're you know they've said late, they say they remark later that or soon, maybe it was around this part where they feel a burden being Nora's only friends, basically. And they feel like, to me, they're not friends at all. That they're really just... They're basically using her for what she can offer, and they're using each other. And it's just... Friendship doesn't come into the equation at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I like it, though. It's it's subtle enough that you could see these people hanging out and then, like, kind of muttering about each other afterwards, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. So this voiceover effect continues in other parts of the film as she's writing other letters back to them. And I thought that was a really great technique in the film to have that voiceover because it really, it centers Nora's voice. And so our perspective, everything that's happening is really through her, through her, you know, perceptions, her senses and hearing her kind of talk about it in, in the letter, you know, does remind us that everything is, is filtered through her
1: we we see see her mailbox where it says Fl- Flanathan Farm. Yeah. Um and we now what, at what point does she find the marble? I noticed that when she had it later, but is this this is when she finds yeah, the marble? Yeah. The
0: part where she finds it. It's on the window ledge when she opens the window, okay. right? Okay. And it's yeah. actually a half marble, which was curious. I didn't know that it was a marble at first and thought it, it looked like an eye, yeah. you know, like a glass eye or something, which is purposeful because there's also this sense throughout the film that Nora is being watched. Yeah. There are certain marbles that are called cat's eyes. Right. You know, they've got the little kind of color in them. They're white marbles. I I think some are called tiger's eyes. So I don't know if the marble has any meaning in mythology or in folk traditions.
1: I I couldn't Uh, find anything, but I I also thought about like with this town, they almost have their own thing. Like it's their own So that like for the, maybe the marble meant fertility or something, you know?
0: Well, and and similar to the wicker man, I mean, they're creating their own mythology here. Yeah. So So, by the way, I mean, we're going to break from the plot various points. Hope that's okay. Yeah. Uh, You know, I'm just curious about this as a precursor to the wicker man. And I mean, if for me, it's obviously huge, huge uh, influence on the wicker man. It seems like that's an, has to be,
1: right? I, well, I would I, my only thing would be that um if this was filmed in December 1970 and was only filmed once or, or maybe twice, I mean shown right. once yeah. or twice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure everybody would have been aware of everything that was was going on. So I'm not I'm not would not say Well, this. I just wonder whether, whether Robin I, Hardy, I believe it, but not a TV show just, that was shown once. I just once. wondered
0: whether and, Robin Hardy or Anthony Schaefer had seen.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't know. Well, but let's talk about the elephant in the room which was clearly this was kind of based on rosemary's baby which was 1968 right or not based on but don't you think it was inspired i mean rosemary's baby was a big movie this person would have definitely seen rosemary's baby well sure yeah rosemary's baby was a
0: massive influence at the time in general and i think i think it was an influence on this film as well i mean how could it not be especially considering the similarities in the plot where a female character is kind of she's like a baby machine for the Rosemary's baby, the devil, but here for the harvest. And I also think there's more similarities around the feminist slant to both films and the, the kind of paranoia in both films. Uh, and, uh, you know, and also, yeah, she, I mean, the, the feminist slant is that the female character is just seen basically as a vehicle for the devil in Rosemary's baby and for, for giving birth to the devil's child. And here Nora is seen just as a vehicle you know, basically, she's the bearer of of the neck of the child that is needed by the village, and I won't say more because we haven't gotten to the ending yet. But I, I mean, the other thing that I think uh, was was in, influenced by Rosemary's Baby, and also influenced by potentially by Robin's Redbreast, is Harvest Home. And I, I don't know. There's some real crazy similarities. I mean, the, in Harvest Home, it's a similar case of a character escaping the city because he's disenchanted with his friends and with the kind of alienation of the urban life and he goes to the country to kind of recharge and in this case he's an artist and so he he goes to, and he sees it as all charming and all the you know basically a, a getaway to get away from everything that he doesn't like about his life in the city he takes his family with him and eventually there's all these odd characters and he writes them off as just quirky and much like Nora does. And, you know, there's, um, eventually things get darker and darker and more grotesque. And just like in Robin Redrest, uh, there's, you know, a ceremony, uh, to bring back the harvest. And in this case, it's the corn crop. And his, his wife is also used as like kind of a, a baby machine for the harvest in a very similar kind of way. Uh, and there's a pretty horrific ending as well, which I won't say here. So I mean, it's just really striking how similar the, the plots are. And did, so, did you, you know, did you
1: say when was that written? Do you happen to know?
0: I think it's seventy three. I want to say I may be wrong about it, but so just after. Okay. A few years after, Rosemary's Baby was sixty eight, right? So yeah, I mean, there's definitely a continuum of folk horror from you know, or or kind of. I don't know if Rosemary, Rosemary's Baby is not a folk horror, but there's a continuum of horror films that do um, cover some of the same themes in, in some of the same ways and are also modern in a way, you know, in terms of feminism, in terms of modern stylistic techniques, because Rosemary's Baby has some really interesting stylized um, cinematography. And that's one thing that I really appreciated about Robin Redrest as well, is it is pretty stylistic, especially for a teleplay, uh, on the BBC where most of them were just filmed with static camera placement. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely something in the air in the late sixties and the seventies that, you know, both made for similar storytelling and similar stylistic techniques. Um, I, I felt like MR James might've been an influence to some degree as well. Um, just because of the Fisher characters and kind of amateur archaeologists, which is yeah. often based for MR James characters.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um here w- let's see Fisher is looking for sherds on her property. I had to look yep. that up. Did you look up sherds?
0: Uh yeah, pot sherds, which I knew pot sherds from my archaeology class in college. Oh, okay. So you'd heard that but before. I didn't I didn't know what sherds was until I saw that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're basically pieces of broken ceramics that are remain in in uh, the soil are in the earth and the ground, and they're dug up on archaeological digs. And... Yeah,
1: and it's related to the word shard, but I guess shard is more glass, so shards is more like pot- okay. pottery. Okay,
0: that, that I didn't know. Yeah.
1: So also Sorry. Fisher is talking about how his name's Fisher, and yet he's never fished or been to the ocean, nor has his ancestors. And it's a weird thing to include in there. I don't. I don't.
0: But he's also mentioned at the same moment that he's not that that his family or his lot lineage has not been out of the village. For hundreds of years right and so that's so they're why, kind yeah. of sheltered yeah i mean yeah. so it's they they bear the name of of this but they're they're sheltered from from the world and you know did you make see any connections with the myth of, or the story of the fisher king
1: at all uh, i i thought about the fisher king and i kind of looked it up and i was like hmm, i'm, I'm not really seeing it I, so i'm not i think that might be forced but did, did what about you did you did you see something there
0: no, not really. I mean, there's the Fisher King is the protector of the grail, right? Right. Um, and, um, and is, you know, is ends up crippled and can't walk and, and is waiting for some kind of magic invocation to be able to give him the power to walk again. But here, I mean, I think he walked Fisher walks with a cane. That's like too, oh, does he? too oh. far. Okay. Yeah, he walks with a cane. But it, I think it's just like an English gentleman kind of thing. Yeah. And and I don't see that there's any equivalent of a grail that he's actually, um, you know, unless you consider Robin kind of a grail that, you know, is being I don't know, is being uh, kept for some purpose.
1: Well, I guess you could say that he's the keeper of of like the tradition in in the village of some sort. But,
0: uh, yeah. But, or the keeper of the village in general. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, he's yeah. definitely the magus for this this movie. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh,
0: so he's looking, so he's looking for these sherds in the garden and he says he's got a, he's a local historian and he's got an archaeological instinct for, for these things. And so he, you know, basically at one point he spends basically 10 seconds like, nope, no sherds. And, and Nora's like, how did, how did it, how did you search the whole garden? He's basically, like he's got an internal divining rod for sherds apparently. So it gives him, I don't know, there's this, ominous sense to this character and perhaps there's even a slightly supernatural sense that he can locate these items of kind of historic and archaeological importance these these relics in in the soil right now
1: and and then he talks about sherds and then he asks her about the birds and then he makes a joke on oh that's funny sherds rhymes with birds yeah she's like what What, what um and, and Flanathan Farm means place of birds in Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. He tells her, yeah. "Bird
0: place." Yeah, then, in Anglo-Saxon, never written down. He mentions an old tongue. Yeah,
1: and he and this is a, a very telling thing. He says birds are often trapped inside the house, and that I think is kind of relevant for later.
0: Right, they get into the chimney, which also is relevant for later, and. And birds trapped in the house is foreshadowing. And so, you know, the there is the central character of Robin Redbreast named after a bird. We'll meet him later. Uh, But he also illustrates in a very ominous way the birds banging on the window trying to get out. Yeah. And he says something important about that. He said they should know the way out, but they don't because they're birds. You know, that is major foreshadowing as well, because there's a character that we'll meet soon that, pretty much has been cast in the role of the trapped bird his entire life. And, you know, you can also think of Nora in this, that she's trapped as well in this, in this town, and eventually in the very cottage itself and that they should know their way out, but they don't. And that really, like what I just mentioned about Nora um, all the clues, everything is right in front of her. Basically the villagers hide nothing from her and she still doesn't put it together.
1: Um, then so she goes inside with the marble and talks to Vigo about Fisher, and v- clearly Mrs. Vigo um, has some regard for Fisher. Let's see, and then they kind of talk about the the that she should go see the gamekeeper who lives through the woods because of the vermin, and Fisher right. says that so it's through through the trees, and Fisher says the trees used to be all oak, but they were cut down and conifers planted. Yeah, we get a shot just soon
0: after this of the pines, and you know that those who know their trees know that you know pines grow when the old trees are cut down, and so the sense of loss that there are no oaks anymore. Kind of, I think this sense of resentment towards modernity and certainly towards the forestry department. Or I don't know if they call it the forestry department in England, but forestry
1: to some. He said forestry. yeah.
0: Yeah, You know, they're supposed to maintain the land, but instead they're chopping down the old oak trees and instead the pines are planted. And, the, and...
1: O- the oak tree has a big significance to ancient people, too. So that's right. Yeah. So the, the Druids had had three trees that were um, very important to them. The the ash tree, the oak tree and the, the hawthorn were, was the third. And they yeah. all had some significance in their um in their rituals that with the oak tree was where they would trim the mistletoe out of, they would harvest that from the oak tree.
0: Yeah. So, so I think before we get to the next scene, we also are, we hear about how the marble has to be brought inside. Uh, I think Miss ego, Spigo says that, and you know, that's very old world superstition sounding to me, you know, that Nora has brought it inside and, and now something inevitable has occurred that can't be, can't be changed yeah yeah and then it, we do get a shot I, there's you know for a film that's a folk horror film there are actually very few shots of the natural surroundings
1: yeah so what i was going to say was and and you can help me with this since this is a good point where we're just starting this pro- process so i really love shots of trees when they shoot up at the canopy and you see that in yeah. all sorts of folk horror movies I mean you see that in a lot of in you know horror movies and and that sort of thing right. but it's like one of my favorite shots and people use it again and again that just shot of the 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 canopy above them so i it's i had scary. this i had this idea to every time we see that in a movie from now on i'm going to screen capture it and like collect them all Yeah, you know, like collect all the all the canopy shots and uh, i think that'll so be just,
0: fun so just just a kind of worm's
1: eye view shot, though. It has to be right. from below. It has, below. To, be the, it has okay. to be from below looking up at the... At the right. Well, at
0: that's, the I think maybe that's a folk horror thing because, you know, you look at, like, Twin Peaks, the iconic opening has the swaying trees, but it's from above. Yeah,
1: so, yeah.
0: And something it, about from the earth, right? From the land. And and as soon as we see that image, we also hear shouts, which is kind of a nice juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, yeah, some some weird primal shouting that you don't really know what it is until he eventually comes upon... Uh, a nearly naked guy doing karate moves in the in the woods. Yeah, he's wearing a speedo,
0: which you know is a little uh, tight even for a speedo. Yeah, but that's important because there's an immediate attraction that Nora feels when she sees him. I mean, she actually sees him, and then when they make eye contact, she runs away, which is interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, it's just too much for her. This this naked. Yeah, yeah.
0: he's. We should say he's practicing karate. You know, on the BFI disc, John John Bowen talks about how he that actually happened to him when he bought this country cottage. He went on his property, and sure enough, there was a half nearly naked guy practicing karate on his on the grounds. Oh. All of this stuff, like apparently, is based in real experience, which yeah, you know, because it's very idiosyncratic. Like, why is this guy naked, and why is he practicing karate shouting? It makes it very strange. It's not not anything you'd expect to see in a a, uh, country state. Right.
1: Right. And we'll, I mean, we'll find out later that he's different from the rest of the villagers, but that's part of his his difference. Yeah. But yeah, so she runs back and she talks to Mrs. Vigo and uh, Mrs. Vigo says almost immediately, what did you think of him? And she, and she's, and she's kind of offended by that because it's kind of personal, you know, like, what are you saying? What do you mean? And then at the same time she looks out the window and she sees what's the guy's name who's cutting the wood. I call him Gummy Gummy Peter, Gummy yeah, Peter. Yeah, I thought his, name was, I thought his name was Peter too.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. That's interesting.
1: Are you sure? Not, her, are you sure her boyfriend's name? Yeah, her boyfriend's yeah, name is yeah, Peter and that Pete. guy's name's
0: Peter. That's Might just be a coincidence. I don't see any connection between the two, but who knows. Yeah, but knows. but you don't
1: that's a dumb coincidence. You, she could have named him anything.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's true. I thought that's his true. name was
1: Peter too. Oh well. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they
0: call him Gummy Peter cuz he has no teeth. <laughs> God, that's gross. <laughs> um and he moans. He, he, he mumbles at one point too, and he's completely inaudible. Which yeah, which is kind of a he's like a village idiot kind of character. Yeah, yeah.
1: And she says, "I'm sure that man's mental."
0: Yes, and it's not the first time that somebody will question the mental health of the villagers.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's there is something bigger that I wanted to ask you about. Maybe this is a good start to. We'll kind of talk about this throughout. But is yeah. there a sense in these um, in these Folk horror movies, the ones we've seen so far, that what we're seeing here is a fear of of the rural folk and a fear of the working class in, in on their farms from these because these are written by, you know, the 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 London uh, screenwriters and the you know, the the well-educated um, men and women who uh, who would be writing about this. And they all have this kind of thing where they're you know afraid of the of the rural folk.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's this is a whole subgenre, right? Of rural horror where, yeah. you know, like, Deliverance, obviously, or, but also the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, where the, the, yep, yep, city folk go into the country and, you know, they get pretty much, um, you know, violently accosted and sometimes raped, like in straw dogs or murdered by these backwoods, inbred, And and at one point, a character refers to the members of this village as inbred as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there is a real fear there. Is a real fear of rural people. But is that is that a paranoia, paranoid fear of the city person who's gotten so removed from the country, or is a little is it a legitimate fear that's also featured in Let's scare Jessica to death, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and a lot in a lot of these these movies and that's that's something let's follow up on each time we look at a new show or a movie where you know if they're all they're not i know i know for a fact that all these folklore things we're going to watch are not all negative towards towards rural life but it's it's important to notice when they are using that sort of trope of the of the scary uh backwards people because yeah let's actually we can move in on to the next scene which is well just um before we do um Sometimes my thoughts come late but on this one
0: there's also like the arrogance of the city dweller who feels like you know that there that the way of the, you know the way of all people should be the way of modernity and the and basically industrialization and and modern life and highways etc and there's a the sense that when there is a self-governing community that's completely self-sufficient That there must be something perverse or twisted about that community, that there can't be a, you know, a legitimate, actual self-governing community in our modern era. Right. That holds to old ways, old traditions.
1: Well, and what I was going to say is that in almost literally you were just talking about this in the next scene, he's she's talking to Rob and Rob is saying, like you said, that he thinks most of the surrounding people are stupid because of inbreeding. And he yes. kind of he kind of wants to get away, and and the funny thing, of course, is that he comes off as kind of backwards, but clearly knows some things and wants to get out of there, wants to go to Canada.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's basically kind of um, you know like borderline autistic, seeming a little bit. Yeah, he does
1: sort of seem like like maybe we'd call him Aspergers today, where he does can't tell when people aren't interested in in the topics that are fascinating to him. But he yeah, talks about excellent. little. But he kind of explains that later. So maybe that's not true. Like maybe he explains why he was going on and on, but we'll get to that. There's Um,
0: also at this point in the film, I'm, I'm thinking like, well, maybe this guy is like, because of his simplicity, he's privy to some truths. He sees, he sees some things that other people don't see. And that ends up being not true. Right. (laughs) Uh, Right. You know, and and quite the opposite. Uh, And He's yeah, I mean, you feel bad for him in this scene because he explains that he's not qualified, that, you know, he would not qualify to. Um, what well, what is it that he, he was talks trying about to, going to college? Finishing yeah, he, college. he
1: failed a test, which meant he couldn't do something because he hadn't done the test. I wasn't sure exactly yes. what it was, but um, yeah. And, and he has no friends, he says.
0: Yeah, Yep. yeah. Yep. And so you feel bad for him a little bit at this point Has also been adopted uh, by the village by Mrs ego which definitely you should feel bad for him for that reason
1: <laughs> but she says and it's it's important she says that he even though you know she, you could tell that mrs Paul, uh that nora was kind of like oh really and then he was like yeah but she was really nice to me and and kind of took care of me and paid for things and right. we kind right. of know why yeah. that is but you know
0: yeah but he changed his name which is significant his name his original name is edgar and he's given the name of Rob or Robin. Yeah. We'll hear about why that is later. It's, um, it's, he's not the first Robin. We'll just say that here. Right. 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 And he did go to college. And so one of the things he says is college raised him. So he feels like he's a little bit above the villagers in this scene, like you said, and yet not, he's not at all.
1: Right. And she, and here she talks to him about the marble and like quizzes him about the marble. And he doesn't seem to have any, idea about it he's pretty clueless so about that, most that of the scene? things i thought yeah. that
0: happened later when they're uh, having their dinner together
1: no it's well i wrote it down here so I, okay i think okay. it's i think it's there yeah um and the next scene actually is then she's talking with her friends about him and yes. how she feels like lady Chatterley, um right because she's attracted right. to this young groundskeeper
0: yeah um, and jake talks about her you know she's like you know, she talks about how everybody's watching her, so she feels like she can't make a move in the cottage because everybody'll know. So Jake responds, "Well, if you're like Lady Chatterley, well, you should be okay with getting your backside a little dirty in, in the woods." Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and then she says that she feels like she's being watched even in the woods. And then they yeah, even, they and, do a quick yeah. shot of the woods right there too. Yeah,
0: and they do the swaying trees again. Yeah, yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then and that's spooky. And then Jake spooky feels like sort of rubbing it in and says do you you hear voices in the wind blowing through the trees like drunken voices yeah. voices of children like yeah. really he's basically frightened, doing a folk, a folk horror like trying to Like an MR James story it's like yeah totally
0: i mean I, I felt like this was this was actually i think in not an in joke but maybe a um kind of a uh, signpost to those of us who love this kind of stuff yeah who love yeah spooky old tales and campfire tales and you know the wind the sound the wind makes when you're camping basically out in an isolated region and of course you know his wife chides him for it because Nora's vulnerable and scared already but I don't think Nora buys into this I mean Nora's not scared by this she's scared by all the mundane stuff that just is slightly off all the weird things that are happening yeah and
1: Jake admits that the reason he's doing it is he wants her to move back he wants her to yes um so they talk about oh you should get more mice to you know to have, so he has to come back to the house and right. she says well you did borrow some books and that's and they're like oh books yeah and <laughs> then doing, it's books. and then it just goes cuts to night and she's basically having a nightmare
0: yeah dream sequence yeah you want, and it's a brief
1: one right
0: well, I just I didn't write down a lot. It was very impressionistic. It was, you know, this this thing is not filmed like this whole movie is not filmed like a traditional BBC staged play. I mean, some of the scenes are right. The scenes where she's talking to Jake and Madge are very stagey. But so much of this is very impressionistic and, you know, not traditional, I would think, for the BBC. You know, you can tell me if I'm wrong. You've seen more than I have. Uh And and I also we haven't mentioned the director, James McTaggart apparently he did have a very anti-naturalistic inclination when it came to filming. He, he wanted to do away with naturalism and he wanted there to be strange cuts. And, and certainly in this scene, we get a very rapid, rapid cuts from the ax, Peter's ax kind of hitting the wood to, uh, to Robin doing his karate in slow motion, which is a very sexualized kind of image of him. Uh, and then to Fisher's, face with his broken glasses where i think he's got like marbles falling out of his eyes or something
1: that see that was a point when it does look interesting in black and white but in color i think we could have is that if it was marbles in his eyes that would have been really cool to see the color of them you know what i mean yeah like i couldn't tell there was something going on with his eyes i was like does he have animal eyes but you're right it might have been marbles in his eyes that could have been they don't look like eyes but in color they might look like eyes oh so maybe if it was like a, like a, an eye looking marble, then you would clearly have been able to see that those were his yeah. eyes and maybe, maybe the eye is some way where he can spy on her. Right. Um, well, or the, the just marble, the sense
0: I mean. that there's just like in the wicker man, that the whole village has eyes and right. he sees through them all. Yeah. You know, he's kind of, he's like the Lord Summer Isle character. I mean, he is yeah. the priest character in this village and he seems to know everything and everybody knows him and defers to him and, he he's even like, you know, controlling the church and the parson in a way. So he is the all scene character and it doesn't look like eyes in black and white, but it still is very spooky. And it, you know, it looks like um, something steampunk or something, you know,
1: with his. Yeah, uh, those weird, gla- his weird glasses. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, somebody somebody commented in a comment on how it was like reminding them of a Thomas Ligotti image.
1: Oh, OK. Um, also, you heard an owl in in here, and I think owls. I mean, owls are used to to show the night, but it's any bird reference is interesting for for this movie.
0: Very ominous sound, yeah. an owl hooting. Yeah, and and well, so and, and birds frighten Birds will be a, play a frightening role very shortly in this. Yeah, well.
1: so she wakes up from this dream sequence, and she's immediately mad at Jake because she feels like he, you know, influenced her to have these this bad dream because. Right,
0: right. Blame, blame Jake. <laughs>
1: I'll blame Jake, though. He's kind of a jerk, so it's okay. Yeah, he's a very,
0: very, totally a jerk, and he's yeah. making passes at her. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then the next day, she talks again with Mrs. Vigo about Rob and how ro- there's always a Robin in town.
0: So that's an important line. She says there's always a young man that answers to the name Robin. So there's obviously some, some role... That somebody will always be groomed to play in this village, and so that you know the sense that Edgar or Rob, as he's as he's christened, he's been they've been preparing him for some kind of role that he will play in some kind of ritual. Yeah. So what's she doing when she's talking about that? though? Oh, I don't remember. So oh, she's is disemboweling that, a oh, chicken. Oh, the
1: chicken. It's the chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, another bird.
0: She's, yeah. She's well, exactly. I mean, she's disemboweling the bird, and that's major foreshadowing to what will happen later.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's clear here that Mrs. Vigo knows, knows everything of what's going on, basically.
0: Like, yeah. Like... And she, what she says, I wrote this down. So first of all, Nora responds negatively to the, the bird being disemboweled, you know, which makes me question, where do you think your chicken comes from? But, you know, that's the common thing with city people who may to be removed from the farm or yeah. removed from agriculture. And she basically says, well, I didn't ask you to kill one spe- specially. And Well, how how does chicken get to your plate? But more importantly, Miss Vigo responds by saying that this chicken was no good anymore, basically, because the chicken can't lay eggs. And so she's quoting quoting her, you wring her neck, slit her throat, hang her up. It's all she's good for. So there's to me like so Nora is childless and 35 and maybe not going to have children. So it's like a threat or some kind of condemnation of Nora. Like, you know, for me, that was I, I had the sense at that moment that Nora would possibly be something bad would happen to Nora, shall we say. Yeah. And that that was for And I think that's like a that's a purposeful
1: misdirection. What did oh, you get yeah. any of that? I guess I didn't necessarily read into it at that point, but I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well Ex- I, did, I except think that she think about it later. Except her so. eggs haven't dried up, so she, she's still okay she's still okay, you know what I mean?
0: But at thirty five it's questionable. I mean the right. idea the sen- there is a sense that you're too old at that point, even even in nineteen seventy, right? That yeah, at that point you're an old spinster.
1: Yeah, they still I mean, that's still today, you know, by thirty five that's that's yeah. what people talk about. Yeah. So they're getting ready for Rob to come over and this is where she realizes that her diaphragm is gone the dutch cap as they call
0: it the birth (laughs) control is missing yeah i mean the uh right so she's obviously planning on having sex at some point and then rob
1: rob shows up and has cleaned himself up
0: so she's she's invited him over for dinner and that's why she's checking for her diaphragm she's clearly has control of her sexuality as any you know liberated woman would and you know is Obviously, she's talking to talking to her friends about sleeping with him. So this is what she has in mind. There's also a shot uh, before I think he arrives, right? Of what is it? Gosh, my notes are bad. Sorry, yeah, I
1: didn't. I don't think I noticed anything here.
0: Well, I it put, is it, it is
1: windy. I wrote
0: down wind, birds. Oh, is that the, the soundtrack then? I think they just show the. I
1: think they show the trees or something. They show that it's windy. Well, we I hear, wrote that down.
0: I wrote down that we must somehow. We, I think we hear wind and birds.
1: Yeah. And right. I th- I think clearly wind is one of the big symbols of the movie winds with you know with the birds because that they they're always talking about that and it's always kind of present this this sure. this this uh, ominous yeah. wind in the background
0: and the soundtrack to the movie really consists of nothing but wind and birds yeah right? I mean there's,
1: there's no music, music. no, no.
0: Yeah. well that's important though right because I mean it's after last last film we talked about which is all music and is a musical yeah here it's really sparse and beautiful actually i mean it's just an eerie breeze that goes throughout and uh i read i did read somewhere um uh adam Scobel compared it to jonathan miller's a oh, whistle and i'll come to you my lad which was another mm-hmm. bbc ghost story apparently the wind in that is very evocative as well see
1: that yeah yeah yeah. and that came i think that was older i think that was the 60s oh that yeah that adaptation yeah, came out yeah that the yeah. the well-known one um. So Rob is over, and he won't stop talking about the SS, which is you know, it's nowadays we'd be really weirded out if a if a guy came over and started talking about the SS. Um, Why are they not so weirded out? <laughs> I, there was there was definitely this interest in the Nazis in the seventies, where it was kind of being part of the the counterculture was like, haha, I have a swastika. It was like the punks. I mean, the like Johnny Rotten had a would wear a swastika. Or Susie yeah. Sue would wear a swastika. That was
0: just, well, that was pure prov- provocation, right? I but mean, there's
1: even um, an episode of The Tomorrow People, which was filmed in the 70s, where it's a big deal that, like, one of the Tomorrow People wants to dress up as a Nazi because it's what all his friends are doing. Okay. And, like, and, like, one of the older Tomorrow People has to step in and be like, What are you doing? Do you know who the Nazis are? So I think it was clearly, like, a thing that people were toying with. And and of course it's the most offensive thing ever to like people who had lived through the the war. Yeah. I mean what could be worse.
0: In this case though, he's yeah, I mean his fascination with it is you know, it seems like it's just one of those weird obsessions, but it's—he's not really interested in it. He thinks it would be interesting to other people,
1: which—that's what he reveals later is that he's just yeah. trying to be a, trying to be a smart person, so he's talking. First
0: me for a loop that that would be interesting to anybody, especially a woman on a date.
1: I mean, that's but, <laughs> you know what it reminds me of is um, you know, like Taxi Driver, where he takes yeah. her to a dirty movie and he's like, oh sure, doesn't yeah. understand that that's a completely offensive thing to do on your yeah, first that's date. A, that's,
0: that's a great comparison. Th- yeah. These are maladjusted people. These are people who have something missing in their social, who are slightly Aspergers or or at least socially
1: um, maladapted. But one one thing I thought was interesting that he did say was he was like, "There's chivalry in the SS, like King Arthur and the Round Table." Mm, you know, like that's yeah. c- kind of right. a creepy thing. Like, like yeah. what? And yeah, that's well, I was going to say then at, at this point he hears a, the car outside. Here's the van.
0: Yes, which is H. Well Beloved's van.
1: Yes. Uh, Here's the butcher, we find out.
0: Yeah, exactly. I don't know where that name comes from. No, I love I it.
1: Uh, it's a great yeah. name.
0: Yeah, and it says it right on his van. It's very obvious. And he's he's one of Fisher's guys, right? He's spying on her at this point.
1: Yeah, so it's the butcher and it's Fisher and it's G- Gummy Peter. I don't, I don't know. It grosses think, me out calling him that. but
0: And there, I just wrote in my notes Nightingale's tune here. So there's... Um, yeah,
1: they mentioned Nightingale's, yeah.
0: They mentioned that specifically. Right.
1: Um, then they flash back and there he's just keeps talking about the SS <laughs> and she's yeah, clearly she's getting, getting bored. Really, no. Yeah. Not, she's
0: not offended. She's just bored. <laughs> right. And she eventually kind of makes, makes her escape or she kind of pretends to be tired and he makes a move on her you know, like, wasn't this what she wanted? She says, no, really, it was what she wanted, but she's basically turned off by him now.
1: Right. She kind of kicks him out of the place. She, Again, you know, she's a strong woman taking charge. And she mentions she's 10 years older than him, too, which is at this point is just an excuse because she was obviously yes. attracted to him before. So she's, she's just trying to...
0: Yeah. yeah, and in her circle, I mean, it probably would... If sleeping with her best friend's husband would mean nothing, then clearly that would mean nothing as well.
1: Yeah, and there is something where... Like he mentions to her that I've ke- I've kept my body at its peak, you know what I mean. There is something where he's at some level understands that he's yeah being groomed true. to do this, and yet a lot of the circumstances he's kind of innocent of, you know what I mean. I like, think
0: he I think he understands he's, got an, he's there's something important that his body is part of, oh, but he doesn't okay. think what it is. I see, yeah, I mean I, I got that feeling that you know he's yeah. they're encouraging the villagers must be. Encouraging the karate and the physical, the, the physical exercise and all of that stuff right. to prime him for something like fat in the goose in some way. You yeah, know? yeah. But he doesn't know. I mean, obviously, he doesn't know at all. He's he's basically kept in the dark on the greater purpose. Uh, I think he does feel special though. He does feel like he's he's playing a role.
1: Then he leaves and is immediately knocked out and immediately hit on the head.
0: Right, right, right. Which is the first act of violence all, all up until now has been just ominous menace and, and unsettling kind of threats that are not really threats. And here we get somebody, you know, something actually happens violent. He's knocked it out, but not for long. Right.
1: Well, yeah. So she goes to bed and you see the van drives off and then she wakes up because what happened?
0: There is. So this is where the camera work gets very expressionistic. Uh, you immediately get a scene, a bird's eye view, uh, coming down the chimney and flying, you know, really randomly and aggressively throughout the house from the bird's point of view. Yeah. So it's a bird, a bird gets in, just like Fisher predicted, a bird comes down the chimney, gets trapped in the house. And very violently the camera is banging off the walls, you know, knocking against the window and she comes down and you never see the bird. You just see it from the bird's perspective and she just starts a blood curdling scream at that point, yeah
1: and and that probably is again your your city folk versus your country folk sort of thing, where that's it's just that intrusion of nature is just too much to handle, you know,
0: yeah, but I also wondered like what's it about this bird? Is this some kind of freakish bird? Oh, <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, they, they, but they, I, I thought that was effective, that bird's eye view yeah, and yeah. scream is freaky, and, you know, it brings him basically running to the rescue.
1: Rob shows up, and they kiss, and then do, do they show them, like, getting in bed? No, they,
0: they immediately cut to the after, and that's still pretty bold. I mean, I don't know about this time, this era, but, you know, to have have that and does show them in bed and then they start to make love again
1: oh yeah 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 and this is where he talks about why he was talking about the ss and why he was going on and on yes. about it um, yeah he
0: should i mean he opens up about his own vulnerability here
1: yeah, yeah. and I, I like that he mentions they didn't just make you think they might make him like a like a virgin or something but they mentioned that he's gone out with girls a couple times and sure he's not like completely innocent he's not a complete you he, know, he's maddie. extremely
0: attractive i mean he's right. he's a very good looking guy and she mentions that and yeah so clearly some you know he's he's had opportunities we should say that he's played by um a stuntman andy bradford who's been in i looked at his credits
1: yeah been, i saw that too he's a he's brilliant. been a stuntman for and most recently he was a stunt driver in red sparrow speaking of birds
0: Oh, very recent. Yeah,
1: like so he's I mean, I'm sure he's an old guy by now, but that's that's kind of huh. cool. Let's see. Oh, she, one thing he said is he did go out with other women, but he felt like he was being collected. Did you hear that? Yeah. Do you remember that line? As I in, do. I
0: didn't write it down, but that's a, that's some, that might be important.
1: And I wondered if that's kind of like uh I don't know, maybe a person who would have relations with a lot of different types of people would would yeah. say they were collected and that like he was an oddity to be somebody, you sure. know?
0: Oh, maybe. Yeah, I think my original thought was that we're
1: now, you know, we're now post
0: women's lib. And so, you know, women feel free to choose and have multiple partners. Right. And he's not okay with that. And he feels, you know, like he's now he's the sex object in this kind of reverse. Reversal. Oh, society. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: you're probably right. And that's it. Thanks for listening to the folk horror podcast. I guess this was a bit of a long one for screen captures, interesting links and so forth. Go to my blog, bujumpudding.blogspot.com. We actually do a lot of work uh, gathering screen captures, and I usually um, make really stupid captions for them. So you can go there to the Pudding blog to read about that. You can follow us on Facebook slash Candle Ends Media. You can follow Candle hyphen ends on Twitter. You can follow Mike on Twitter at happywanderer13, or Candle Ends Media on Instagram. You can email me at neil neil@candle-ends.com. At that might be the best way to get your comments, or you can just comment on the on the blog. Good night, and may the gods treat you fairly, and may you never be picked for ritual sacrifice.